0: This is Democracy Now! There's been talk already about um,
1: folks getting offers on their homes, and I know from friends that that's happening. Um, But as I mentioned, there's also water grab in the works, and and the discussion around this really makes me fear for the future of Lahaina and whether or not it will be one that includes Native Hawaiians and other local people or or whether the Build Back will focus on outsiders.
0: Plantation Disaster Capitalism. Fear is growing among native Hawaiians that wealthy interests will seize land and water resources in this time of crisis on Maui as the death count continues to rise. We'll go to Hawaii for the latest. Then, teach no lies. As students return to school in Florida, we'll speak with the historian leading the fight against the state's new black history curriculum that claims black people benefited from being enslaved. And we'll look at a shocking new Washington Post expose revealing the Smithsonian has a racial brain collection gathered in part by a racist anthropologist.
2: There were children in the collection. There were men and women and then fetuses. Many of them were indigenous people, other people of color, and many of them didn't have their identities actually recorded, partly because they were
0: looked at as specimens. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Canada, officials have declared a state of emergency in the British Columbia city of West Kelowna as a wildfire tripled in size. Thousands have been evacuated. Meanwhile, mass evacuations continued in Canada's Northwest Territories capital city of Yellowknife, where all 20,000 residents have been told to leave. It's quite scary um, because with the smoke, of course, it's actually lightened up a little bit. But the smoke was very, very thick this morning. And um, so, I mean, it's not a good situation, that's for sure. Over a thousand active blazes are burning across Canada in its worst ever wildfire season. In Hawaii the head of Maui's emergency management resigned, citing health reasons, one week after the deadly wildfire started and one day after Herman Andaya defended not sounding sirens to warn people as the flames engulfed thousands of homes and businesses. Officials have now identified six victims as the death toll of 111 is expected to rise over the coming days. Meanwhile, concerns are mounting over climate gentrification in the tragedy's wake. Many Native Hawaiians had already been priced out of their land due to a swelling housing crisis, with Hawaii ranking as the most expensive state to rent or own a home in the U.S. Hawaiians and residents of Hawaii have reported receiving predatory calls from developers seeking to buy their property. Hurricane Hillary grew to a Category 4 storm off the Pacific coast of Mexico and is expected to bring heavy downpours and flooding to parts of the U.S. southwest and northwestern Mexico this weekend. In Spain's Canary Islands, thousands have been evacuated as the Tenerife wildfire continues to burn out of control. Tenerife, a popular vacation island, has seen higher-than-average temperatures this summer, much like the rest of Spain and Europe. Next week could bring more possibly record-breaking extreme heat across the continent. President Biden is hosting the first-ever trilateral summit with leaders of Japan and South Korea at Camp David. Beijing has bashed the summit as a mini-NATO. Meanwhile, South Korea warned North Korea could launch another intercontinental ballistic missile to protest the summit. An assessment by U.S. intelligence predicts Ukraine's counteroffensive will fail to reach the key southeastern city of Militopol. The Washington Post reported the news, which would mean Ukraine will not achieve its goal of cutting off Russia's land bridge to Crimea. It could also renew debate within the international community over the billions of dollars in military assistance being sent to Ukraine to fight Russia's invasion. In other news about the war, Chinese Defense Minister Li Shang-Fu visited Belarus on Thursday, vowing to increase military cooperation with the Russian ally. Meanwhile, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko said Thursday Belarus is ready to use nuclear weapons from Russia if it faces aggression. Around 1,000 Palestinians imprisoned by Israel have launched an indefinite hunger strike to protest attacks by the Israel Prison Service, which is overseen by the far-right national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Prisoners have asked Palestinians living in the occupied West Bank to hold solidarity demonstrations. Meanwhile, Israel's deadly attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank continue. At least three people were killed this week, including a 16-year-old boy. The family of 32-year-old Mustafa al-Kastuni decried his killing as they accused Israeli forces of shooting him dead even after he said he'd surrender. Israeli forces then detonated explosives in his family's home. This is Mustafa al-Kastuni's mother. We
1: looked and we saw that they blew up the house in seconds. The stairs area was packed with Israeli soldiers and also the buildings nearby. They blew up our house. I wanted to go through the rubble, but I couldn't. The young men helped me to go through. I was looking for Abu Ali, but they
0: said he wasn't there with them. I asked them to check under the rubble and they agreed. They told me he died. In Guatemala, voters are heading to the polls Sunday for a highly anticipated presidential election between the progressive candidate Bernardo Arevalo and former First Lady Sandra Torres. A new poll shows Arevalo of the Samia party in the lead. Arevalo spoke to the Atlantic Council in July.
3: What we have seen afterwards in the streets is that there is a rekindling of hope, a rekindling of confidence. And, uh, and, and that people are actually believing that we can advance and begin to get rid of this corrupt political system that we have been suffering for decades by
0: now. His opponent, Sandra Torres, has faced corruption charges and is backed by Guatemala's business and political elite. Meanwhile, Ecuador is gearing up for a snap presidential election Sunday after the current president, Guillermo Lasso dissolved Congress in May to avoid his impeachment. At least three political leaders have been killed in recent weeks, including presidential candidate Fernando Vicencio. This is progressive presidential frontrunner, Luisa Gonzalez, of the Citizen Revolution Movement Party.
2: Nos QUIEREN LLENAR...
1: They want to fill us with hopelessness so they can bury
0: us in sadness and pain. That way they can immobilize us. But we will react. We will react firmly and strongly by saying no. In Pakistan, more than 140 people were arrested. Over 6,000 police and paramilitary troops are deployed in the eastern city of Jaranwala in Punjab province after a group of Muslims torched churches and vandalized homes and businesses in a violent spree that has left the minority Christian community reeling. The violence was reportedly in retaliation for the desecration of a Quran by two Christian men. This is a Jaranwala man whose house was destroyed.
3: When I saw my house, I felt a jolt in my heart, and I thought I was going to fall. I immediately came out of my house and sat down. We have not committed any crime. All this is a grave injustice towards us.
0: The head of the provincial government, Mohsin Nakvi, vowed to compensate and restore victims for their losses. Meanwhile, Muslim faith leaders joined their Christian counterparts in calling for accountability and protection for vulnerable minorities. This is Muslim cleric Tahir Mahmoud Ashrafi.
3: Mr. Chief Justice of Pakistan, the nation demands that you establish a court right by the church where the Holy Cross is vandalized, and that you conduct a trial and reach a verdict within a month. The nation wants the culprits to be punished.
0: Back in the United States, Donald Trump's legal team has asked to push back his January 6th trial to April 2026, well after the election, citing the overwhelming amount of evidence they need to sort through. The Justice Department has requested the trial start the first week of January 2024. Trump remains the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination as he faces four indictments. In Georgia, officials are investigating after Trump supporters threatened and doxed grand jurors who voted to indict Trump over his efforts to overturn his 2020 defeat. Meanwhile, Trump's canceled a planned press conference Monday, where he claimed he would present evidence exonerating him from the charges. In related news, prosecutors are seeking sentences of 33 years in prison for the two former leaders of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio and Joe Biggs. They were found guilty in May of seditious conspiracy over the January 6th capital assault, It will be the longest prison terms for anyone involved in the insurrection. In Canada, at least three land offenders were arrested Tuesday after officials resumed enforcement of a court injunction used to crack down on activists at the indigenous-led blockade at the Ferry Creek watershed on Vancouver Island. This comes as over 140 court cases against anti-logging protesters were recently dropped by British Columbia authorities. As it was found, police didn't properly read or explain the court injunction to them. The injunction was first granted to logging company Teal Jones in April 2021 and was lifted a few months later after a court said it violated the civil liberties of protesters and infringed on press freedom. And a new study shows Latinx children living in states with anti-immigrant laws are more likely to experience mental health and chronic physical health issues. The study says racist laws that make it difficult to access health care, affordable housing, education and stable employment have attributed have contributed to worsening asthma, diabetes and other physical ailments, as well as severe mental health conditions, including depression among Latinx children and teens aged three to 17. Among the worst states are Alaska, Alabama. And Nebraska, and those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now! democracynow.org. The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Hawaii, where the death toll from the Maui fire stands at 111, but as many as a thousand people remain unaccounted for. As The Search for Bodies continues, we look today at what some Native Hawaiians are calling plantation disaster capitalism, a growing fear that wealthy interests will seize land and water resources in this time of crisis. The writer Naomi Klein and the Hawaiian law professor Kapu'ala Sprout write about plantation disaster capitalism in a new article in The Guardian. They write, quote, It's a name that speaks to contemporary forms of neocolonialism and climate profiteering, like the real estate agents who've been cold-calling Lahaina residents who've lost everything to the fire and prodding them to sell their ancestral lands rather than wait for compensation. But it also places these moves inside the long. Long and ongoing history of settler colonial resource theft and trickery, making clear that while disaster capitalism might have some modern disguises, it's a very old tactic, a tactic that Native Hawaiians have a great deal of experience resisting. Those were the words of Naomi Klein and Kapua Sprout in The Guardian. Well, on Thursday night, I spoke to Professor Sprout from her home on the island of Kauai. She's a professor of law at Kahule'a Native Hawaiian Law Center. She also co-directs the Native Hawaiian Rights Clinic at the University of Hawaii at Manoa School of Law. I asked her to describe what's happening on Maui.
1: Well, mahalo, Amy, for this opportunity to be here. To be quite honest, things are pretty brutal right now in Maui Komohana or in West Maui people are still trying desperately to find ways forward from this disaster of untold proportions. And I'm not on Maui, I'm actually um, on the island of Kauai, so a couple islands over. Um, And I have not been there since the fire, but that's also absolutely appropriate because people who don't need to be there should stay away, but send support from afar, regardless of what that looks like, whether that means making and sending ploy or writing opinion pieces or sending money, um, whatever's the best way people can support from where they are, I think is really important. Um, But the word from our network of folks on the ground is that people are really struggling. I mean, our community has rallied in amazing ways, and I think that that's part of the message that we want to get out, you know, that Lahaina strong and Maui strong, that those are more than sayings. Our people are incredibly resilient. People aren't waiting on FEMA or even on the state or county. Relief organizations are springing up in people's homes and their garages and supplies are coming in by boat, by plane, by vehicle when the roads are open. Um, But there are also a lot of uncertainties and people are concerned. Because what's galling for me is I see in the midst of, you know, all of this attention and focus and resources being streamed towards Maui, that really there's a naked power grab and really a land and water grab that's also underway. There's been talk already about um, folks getting offers on their homes. And I know from friends that that's happening. Um, But as I mentioned, there's also water grab in the works. and, And the discussion around this really makes me fear for the future of Lahaina. And whether or not it will be one that includes Native Hawaiians and other local people or whether or whether the build back will focus on outsiders.
0: Let's talk about each issue. First, the land grab. What exactly does that mean?
1: So to be clear, again, I am not on the ground on Maui, but what I understand from people who are there is that there are realtors and there are others who are making offers to people in their most desperate time of need. When people are, you know, desperate for funding and other resources to try to build back their lives, people are getting offers on their ancestral homes, um, lands that here in Hawaii, when we talk about ancestral lands and our connection to place, um, we talk in generations and in hundreds of years. And so our Native Wine Rights Clinic has been on the ground in Maui Mohana, working with community members for several years now, and many of our community members have long-standing relationships to place. And it's some of these community members who are getting offers on their homes at this most difficult time, which, in my opinion, of course, is is completely inappropriate.
0: You talk about plantation disaster capitalism. Explain.
1: Plantation ca- disaster capitalism, I think, is unfortunately the perfect term for what's going on in Maui Komohana or in West Maui right now. Um, the plantations, the large landed interests that have c- had control over not just the land, but really much of Hawai'i's and Maui Komohana's resources for the last several centuries, are using this opportunity of uh, are using this time of tremendous trauma for the people of Maui to swoop in. And to get past the law, basically, they're using the emergency proclamation that the governor put into place the day after the fires to, you know, ravage Lahaina. And they're using this as an opportunity to try to get their way, especially with respect to water resources, um, something they could not achieve when the law and Hawaii's water code in particular were in place.
0: Talk more about the
1: water grab. So in Hawaii, water is life. It's one of our most important resources. In fact, there are many people who would say fresh water is our most important resource. And it's what enabled our people to be able to not just survive, but really thrive in Hawaii for more than a millennia. And in Lahaina in particular, this area, sure, it's special for people who come on vacation and people who know French Street. But for the people of this community, Lahaina was really the seat of the Hawaiian kingdom. It was the capital before the island of before. O'ahu, and part of the reason that that was so, that Lahaina was such an important place was because of the abundance of resources and the abundance of water resources in particular. Before the arrival of Europeans in Hawaii, Lahaina was actually known as the Venice of the Pacific, which for folks who have been there recently might seem extraordinary. Right now, Lahaina has been desiccated and is almost like a dry desert area, but when it was managed by Kanaka Maoli, by Native Hawaiians, it was abundant with water and other resources. So what happened was that with the arrival of plantation interests, those water resources, and especially after the capital was moved to Oahu, those resources were grabbed up by landed plantation interests. So first sugar plantations and pineapple plantations, and later those resources were diverted to support. Um, other kinds of development, including luxury residential development, and even to support hotels in some instances. And so what happened is that the vai vai, as we call it, the wealth of Lahaina was actually taken by these corporations. And so what we also know, at least the people from Hawaii is that part of the reason for this extraordinary tragedy um, in Maui Komohana or in West Maui is also because there has been more than a century of plantation water mismanagement in this area. It's because of extractive water policies where water hasn't remained on the land, invasive grasses have come out. That's what created the tinderbox and this unfortunate situation of the tragic fire that took place earlier this month.
0: Um, You've raised the issue of the governor wasting no time in issuing emergency proclamations as the wildfires continue to burn, which suspended a series of laws, uh, including Hawaii State Water Code. Can you talk about why this is significant?
1: I think part of what's so disappointing in the way the governor in partnership with large landed interests um, in Maui Komohana have tried to accomplish this naked power grab, because really it's more than just a water grab, it's also a power grab, is that they're specifically usurping both the law and more than that, they're usurping longstanding and broad-based community interest and support for more proactive water management and water management that's gonna ensure that the resources benefit the people. So to provide some context, for several years now, Hawaii State Water Commission has proactively attempted to um, create what we call water management designation, which is really just a fancy term. It's an additional layer, kind of like zoning, that goes over an area where we know water resources are threatened. And once that happens, there's an additional layer of permitting that's invoked that allows the Water Commission... To revisit allocations and how water is actually used and distributed this is really important because in hawaii we have a public trust doctrine which means that our water resources are managed for present and future generations and cannot be owned by any individual but the problem is that despite what we call the black letter law in many ways in Hawai'i, and for the last century at least might has made right and in small towns like lahaina um companies with a lot of influence have been able to maintain control of the water resources, even when there are interests like native Hawaiian families, like the streams themselves that have a higher call to write or higher water rights, at least according to the black letter law. So part of the situation in Maui Komohana is that because of this long history of struggle, um, Native Hawaiians and really people across the community came forward, participated in public hearings before our state water commission, and loudly called for more proactive water management. And in June 22... 2022 they were successful in achieving this water management area designation for Lahaina that means additional permit protections were put into place and many folks native hawaiians who have superior rights but whose rights whose rights have been ignored were able to come forward and begin a permitting process unfortunately those existing water use permit applications were due on Monday August 7th and the fire ravaged Lahaina on Tuesday August 8th and then on Wednesday August 9th The governor's office issued these emergency proclamations, which suspended the water code. So despite this huge effort to try and put this additional protection in place, which, of course, was predictably opposed by industry interests and development interests, but they were unsuccessful. um, The Water Commission unanimously voted for water management area designation. And yet um, then what they were unable to accomplish legally They were able to accomplish with the support of the governor and the emergency proclamation. And so it's unfortunate that what we see then, that's why what's happening right now epitomizes plantation disaster capitalism, because here we have a handful of incredibly privileged, large landed interests using this terrible tragedy to displace and to push through laws that they were unable to secure um, when Hawaii State Water Code was in place.
0: Finally, Kapua, President Biden is coming to Maui on Monday. What message do you feel he needs to hear? And what do you want to see the federal government do right now?
1: I understand that President Biden is going to be coming um, into Maui very shortly. And I hope what he will see and what he will learn and what he will support is the resilience of the people who are on the ground in Maui right now. Um, the community members like council member um, Tamara Paulton who are doing so much with so little um, I hope he will see the resilient spirit of our community members and the tremendous need because we need lots of support um, from the federal government in a whole range of areas. I hope he will also um, see some of the pol- political shenanigans that are taking place and understand that if we really want to protect the things that make Hawaii truly special, we can't just throw out all of the th- all of the laws and other things that help to protect our resources um, when disaster strikes. We, as a community, need to circle up. We need to come. To together. And we need to um, lean into each other and really look to and embrace the principles that have innate, like aloha aina, that have enabled us to thrive here in Hawaii for a millennia.
0: Kapuala Sproat, professor of law at Kahuleao Native Hawaiian Law Center. She also co-directs the Native Hawaiian Rights Clinic at the University of Hawaii at Manoa School of Law. We'll link to the Guardian article she co-wrote with Naomi Klein, headlined, Why Was There No Water to Fight the Fire in Maui? Coming up, Teach No Lies— As students return to school in Florida, we'll speak with a historian leading the fight against Florida's new black history curriculum that claims black people benefited from being enslaved. Back in 30 seconds. Ta covered by Rufus Wainwright, the independent song of Hawaii, translates as famous are the flowers. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Florida, where Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is losing ground as support for his 2024 presidential bid slips to its lowest level this year before next week's Republican debate. Students in Miami returned to school Thursday, one day after a teach-no-lies march to the office of the Miami-Dade County School Board to protest what many call Florida's racist new curriculum standards for teaching Black history. The measure is part of a broader push by DeSantis to root out ideas he says are woke. The new curriculum teaches that some Black people benefited from being enslaved because they learned useful skills— Protesters Wednesday were joined by some members of the Teamsters National Black Caucus, who are holding a conference in Miami, and by Tennessee State Representative Justin Pearson, who was recently voted back into office after he was expelled, along with Representative Justin Jones, for protesting Republicans' failure to pass gun control laws after the Covenant school mass shooting in Nashville. This is Pearson.
3: But there were no benefits for people who were enslaved, being raped,
0: having your children stolen from you, being maimed, being denied the right to read. Those were not benefits for our ancestors. The Florida Education Association, a teachers union representing about 150,000 teachers, called the new standards, quote, a disservice to Florida students and are a big step backward for a state that has required teaching African-American history since 1994. For more, we're joined by Marvin Dunn who helped organize Wednesday's protest, has been leading Teach No Lies tours that take teachers and young people to places like Rosewood, Florida, the site of a 1923 massacre of black residents at the hands of a white mob that murdered at least six black residents, forced the rest of the town to flee. Many eyewitnesses said the true death toll was far higher. The violence began when a white woman falsely accused a black man of assault. By the time the massacre ended, every building in Rosewood except one had burned down. No law enforcement agency investigated the massacre. No one was ever charged with crimes. Marvin Dunn is a professor emeritus at Florida International University, author of numerous books, including The History of Florida Through Black Eyes. In the book, he writes, almost all of Florida's painful racial past has been whitewashed, marginalized or buried intentionally. But I was born here. I know Florida's flowers and her warts, he writes. Professor Dunn is also co-founder of the Miami Center for Racial Justice. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Professor. Uh, You were one of those who led that march this week, um, right before kids go back to school. Um, Talk about the new curriculum that uh, Governor DeSantis, presidential candidate DeSantis, is pushing and that the teachers are forced to teach.
3: Well, first, thank you very much for having me on. It is a disaster. Uh, It cannot be implemented. The state threw out some standards without connecting them to any courses, so teachers in Florida don't know how to implement this law. We are now in a confused, demoralized state of education in Florida. Uh, This man has, I think, done the most damage to education in this state than I can imagine. We're trying to figure out what to do next in order to have teachers not arrested for not implementing these standards. We're trying to get clarification from the Department of Education. They do not respond. So basically, it's just a mess in Florida.
0: You are doing something very unusual. You are taking people to sites of massacres, and you are teaching on the ground. Talk about what you're teaching And how these stories are changed, for example, uh, with the um, uh, with the curriculum saying you have to talk about how slavery actually benefited the enslaved.
3: Well, we're still trying to figure out how slaves had personal benefits when they were not even considered to be persons. They were property. How could a chair or a cow have have, have personal benefits? This is what has enraged Black America, and a lot of white people as well. The very idea of trying to suggest or having teachers teach that enslaved people had some benefit from being enslaved, even if the 1% of enslaved who were freed had some marketable skill, what about the 99% who basically had no skills at all? What about the millions of slaves who died before emancipation? What personal benefit did they receive? What DeSantis is trying to do with this issue and others is to equivocate evil. Uh, everybody was doing slavery. Every country had slavery. Slavery was in Africa. It was in China. It was in Asia. Teachers are required to teach that as a part of the Black History course. Why? Why does he want teachers to teach about slavery in these other places? Because the argument is America was just another country that had slavery. No different from anybody else. But America was different. America was the only country that had slavery in which the enslaved were not people, but property. That was a unique American contribution to, to, to slavery. So we're trying to, to correct these lies. We're trying to make sure that teachers are, are not teaching these lies. Uh, but it is an uphill struggle here in Florida.
0: Professor Dunn, on Sunday, you posted a photo on social media of yourself posing with your fist in the air in front of your Rosewood neighbor's Confederate flag. You wrote, quote, In Rosewood today, in front of my neighbor's property, he just got convicted of six counts of hate crimes from when he tried to kill me and a group that was visiting my property. He was mad because we parked on his side of the road— I was standing on his side of the road today, you wrote. Can you describe this attack? What happened to you, your son and others?
3: Certainly. Uh, I'm the only person, a black person who owns land in Rosewood today. All of the white people left. Rosewood is now a bedroom community, uh, very wealthy people, five acre uh, estates out there. And I purchased five acres of land, pristine land, not touched since the 1923 uh, event. And uh, with the arrival of the 100th uh, recognition of the event, uh, I went to my property to uh, meet with some white people, some contractors to talk about clearing the property so that we could have an event on the the site. This was in September. Uh, as we were leaving, and I had two white gentlemen that we met with up there to talk about what they would do to help us with this. And as we were leaving, my neighbor across the street, I, I've owned this property since 2008, never spoke to him nor him to me. So he rolls up to me in his truck, big white truck with the big wheels and what have you, lets the window down and asked me, what's going on out here? So I said, well, sir, this is my property, and, we're, and that's as far as I got. He said, well, if that's your property, why don't you park on your side of the road? I said, well, this is a county road. We'll park wherever we wish. Threw him into a rage. He guns the his vehicle, spins around, almost hits people, and it starts yelling racial epithets. I won't repeat what he said, but the N-word was used again and again. He says to one of the white men who was with us, you're just as bad as the, the N-word plural, and sped off the, onto his property. And a few minutes later, he comes out at full speed. And almost kills us uh, as, as we we're trying to get out of his way. So we called the police. The County Police came out and they arrested him a few days later and charged him with using his truck as a, as a, as a weapon. Uh, when I got back to Miami, back home, I don't live up there. I live in Miami. I called the FBI and reported this as a hate crime. And I must say, even though you hear a lot of attacks on the Department of Justice and, and what have you, they were on the job. Uh, the FBI investigated this case. This man was tried uh, a week or so ago in, Gaines, in Gainesville, Florida, by a jury of 11 people, no blacks. And he was found guilty of six counts of hate crime. And he's he's facing uh, 10 years on each count. And then Wednesday, uh, yesterday, he was tried in Levy County on the state charge. I'm not sure what the result of that was. So this gentleman is facing a lot of time in prison for what happened that day.
0: You want to build a peace house in Rosewood, an educational hub for students to learn about Florida's history of racial violence. Uh, Are you still going to do that? And is he out free until he's sentenced?
3: He is free. He is out. Uh, uh, We were just up at my property this past weekend with 30 teachers from Dade County. We hired a Florida Highway Patrolman to sit there for the time that we were there on the property. And we have to do that now to assure that 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 we're not having a problem with this man. Um, But uh, we will be using uh, that uh, five-acre site to uh, make a park that commemorates the history of Rosewood. And we're going to rebuild the old railroad depot and use it as a peace house where people can come to Rosewood, walk that bloody ground, experience the sense of ancestors, talk about peace, bring our country together uh, in this place where a very, very terrible thing happened. I don't believe that America is as is as racially divided as DeSantis and the mega Republicans would have us to believe. I don't think most Americans want the government to be telling teachers what to teach at universities. I don't think the government, I don't think most Americans, white, black, Republican or Democrat, want to see the intrusion of government into private life, personal life, and, and education as we now see it happening. So that's why we're going to build that house that railroad depot and make it into a a place of peace so that we can really bring our country together. Folks want to come and sit and talk and work out problems. That's what we intend to do there.
0: Professor Dunn, Florida Governor DeSantis has conducted a conservative takeover of the progressive new college. Um, Many professors have left. You are going to be teaching a black history class there this fall. Can you talk about what you will be teaching and how that fits into or don't you care um, about the Stop Woke Act?
3: Uh, We're going to be teaching institutional racism in Florida. We're going to be teaching the the very black history that DeSantis does not wish us to teach. We're going to take uh, new college students on the same tours that I'm taking high school students. We even have plans to bring them to New York. Uh, our nonprofit called the Miami Center for Racial Justice is raising money to support New College and to support these tours that we're doing. DeSantis says New College is where uh, woke goes to die. Now, mind you, this is a very small college. It's 700 students. I think many many of them have left now, but this is the place that DeSantis chose to, 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 to um, fight woke. And what we're finding is that he's killing that college. People are leaving. Uh, I've committed uh, to teach there for free, and I will do so with or without the permission of the president, and I will do it if I have to do it on the, on the parking lots.
0: Can you tell us what happened in Okoye, one of the places that you bring students, teachers, professors to?
3: Thank you for asking that question. Because Okoye is one of the two places that these new state standards require teachers to teach what happened there, and they're requiring teachers to teach a lie. They're requiring teachers to teach that there was black violence against whites in Okoye and in Rosewood. Let me tell you what happened in Okoye. 1920, a black man tried to vote. July Perry was his name. He was turned away from the polls, a mob formed a couple of steps in between that, and they come to his house to confront him. They surround July Perry's house and they start shooting into it. And they kill two of their number. Two of the mob were killed by friendly fire. That's the official report from the Orange County Sheriff. And yet the historical blame is on July Perry that he killed these two men, that there was equal violence in Okoi uh, by whites and blacks. 300 black people killed in Okoi. I took those teachers last Saturday to the spot where they're buried, this mass grave, and we stood and prayed and sang and told the truth about what happened in Okoi. That's just one of the lies that is being required uh, uh, to be taught in Florida right now. The other one is about Rosewood, as a matter of fact. In that instance, you had a man in his mom's house with his family protecting them. The mob comes to the house. His mother goes to the window and tries to convince them to go away. They shoot and kill her dead. His mom falls dead in front of him. And then two men, two white men come up onto his front porch and he killed them dead, shot them dead. And that's black on white racial violence. This is the kind of thing that we're fighting in Florida, where DeSantis DeSantis is trying to make it appear that there was evil on both sides. Same thing as Charlottesville, evil on both sides. And we're trying to fight that in Florida.
0: You're also one of eight plaintiffs in a lawsuit over DeSantis's law called the Stop Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, which also applies to public university professors. Can you explain that?
3: yes. Uh, DeSantis wants to shut down discussion in Florida universities about race. Uh, He is saying to us that we cannot use certain terms like institutional racism. Well, I teach a course on Black Florida history and on Black Miami history. Miami and Florida were both bathed in racism as they were born, as they came to be. There was not one single institution in the history of the city of Miami, for example, that was not racist. Business, police, education, entertainment, the church, everything was based on race. But we're not allowed to say that, much less speak about racial violence, because some white people think that their kids might, be, might feel uncomfortable. If we talk about those things, what about black kids who may feel uncomfortable when we're talking about things that might have, uh, uh, offend them? So what we're seeing is a very, very confused uh, 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 attack, but the ultimate, ultimate aim is very clear. Suppress education that, that deals with racial history. Suppress discussions, particularly of, of of institutional racism, and keep our educational system based upon basically, essentially, Christian nationalist principles and beliefs.
0: Can I ask? We just have thirty seconds. You're wearing a T-shirt that says "Teach the Truth." Um, who ignited that flame that burns in you, Professor Dunn?
3: My mom. My mother. Long gone now, uh, who taught us, my four brothers and me, that you tell the truth, you teach the truth, you don't promote lies, you're an honest person, and we expect you to go up you an honest person. I got that from my mom and my dad as well.
0: Marvin Dunn, we thank you so much for being with us, Professor Emeritus at Florida International University, author of numerous books, including The History of Florida Through Black Eyes, co-founder of the Miami Center for Racial Justice, joining us from Palmetto Bay, Miami. Next up, we look at a shocking new Washington Post expose, revealing the Smithsonian has a racial brain collection gathered in part by a racist anthropologist. Back in thirty seconds. When
3: seasons change. And
2: we've against the past September A lot of scars that kind of scare you to remember Scarfling times
0: And seeing people trying to put you down For goodness sakes,
3: people trying to take what you know you find Stranded in someone else's neighborhood Listening to the undertone
0: When seasons change, Curtis Mayfield, here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show looking at a major investigation by The Washington Post that revealed the Smithsonian Institution holds a so-called racial brain collection that contains 255 brains gathered in the first half of the 20th century. Much of it was collected at the behest of a racist anthropologist who was trying to scientifically prove the superiority of white people. An investigation by The Washington Post found most of the brains in the Smithsonian collection were removed from dead Black and indigenous people and other people of color, often taken without consent from their families. In a moment, we'll be joined by the two reporters behind this investigation, Nicole Dunka and Claire Healy. But we begin with an excerpt of a video produced by The Washington Post.
2: In a cemetery in St. Louis, at least six Filipinos are buried. They died at the 1904 World's Fair. Jonna and the Nuevo Langholz started searching for their graves in 2021 after reading about them in archival newspapers. Well, I think they deserve to be remembered. This whole investigation
4: began in February 2022 when I came across Jonna's Instagram and I was going to write about her work to find the places that these people were buried. And then she shared a record with me that said four of those people had their brains removed and taken to the Smithsonian.
2: Once I heard about the Filipino aspect of this story, I got really interested in working with Claire on this. Langholz's discovery would inspire a year-long investigation into the Smithsonian's collections of human remains.
4: I had already been researching Filipinos that were part of this exhibit, like put on exhibition, who had died at the 1904 World's Fair. And I came across a catalog online from the Smithsonian. They had listings of things that they had acquired from St. Louis, either during or after the fair. And then I asked the Smithsonian, how many brains do you have and why? and They sent me a spreadsheet of all the brains that they have with locality and what's called an accession number. I went to the Smithsonian Institution Archives and took each of these numbers and got the original accession cards.
2: So these are the cards that are filed away every time a new body part was entered into a collection at the Smithsonian. And we built up a database of those. There were children in the collection. There were men and women and then fetuses. Many of them were indigenous people, other people of color, and many of them didn't have their identities actually recorded, partly because they were looked at as specimens. The Smithsonian currently has 255 human brains in a storage facility in Maryland. Records suggest only four of those brains were collected with consent.
0: That was a video report by The Washington Post to accompany its major new investigation revealing the Smithsonian's racial brain collection. While the Post was reporting on the story, the Smithsonian formed a task force to develop a policy to address the future of human remains held within its museum's collections. The Smithsonian Secretary Lonnie Bunch said, quote, At the Smithsonian, we recognize certain collection practices of our past were unethical. What was once standard in the museum field is no longer acceptable. We acknowledge and apologize for the pain our historical practices have caused people, their families, and their communities. Lonnie Bunch is also the former head of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Joining us now are The Washington Post's Claire Healy and Nicole Dunka, who is also the president of the Asian American Journalists Association. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Claire, why don't you lay out the scope of this project and take it from where um, you were both speaking in this video report?
4: Sure, and thank you for having us.
0: Um, I mean, to start, we started looking at the brain
4: collection, which, as you said, has 255 brains, and that's just what they have today. Like, we found evidence that they had 268 overall, and some were cremated and four were repatriated, but that's just a fraction of what they actually have in human remains total. They have 30,700 sets of human remains and to give you a sense of what that means, each of those numbers is a set of human remains, not an individual. And so the number of people who are in this collection is actually higher than that 30,000. So, talk And the 30,000 comes from 80 countries at least around the world.
0: All right. Name the anthropologist. Talk about his motivations and where he went all over the world to gather these skulls, overwhelmingly uh, not given by families, uh, not given with consent.
4: Sure. Alice Herdlichka was the head curator of the Division of Physical Anthropology at the Smithsonian. And when he started at the Smithsonian in 1903, he set out creating a massive network that would collect these remains on his behalf— And so he would send people to South Africa, to the Philippines, to gather remains for him and send them back to the Smithsonian. And he believed in white superiority. And so when he was collecting these remains, he wanted to research race and the physical differences that he saw between races. But he was also looking into human origins and the origins of people in the Americas. And so 15,000 of these remains are estimated to be Native American. Um, And he was looking at the origins of people in the Americas, but also all of his studies would come consistently back to
0: looking at race. And you talk about how um, he's not even referring to his own research as he tries to um, lay out uh, the basis of his theory of white superiority. He was just spouting the standard eugenics line at the time.
4: Yes. So we couldn't find actual studies he did on these brains. A lot of the um, studies he put out were on the brain specifically. He did a study on brain preservatives, but he didn't put out anything on comparing race in the way that he said he wanted to. But he would still answer letters. He would still tell newspapers that, you know, white brains show some superiority to black brains, but he wouldn't reference any studies he did. And as far as we can tell, he didn't do those studies.
0: I want to bring Nicole Dunka into this conversation, the reporter on this incredible series, uh, on this incredible investigation. You're also president of the Asian American Journalists Association, um, and you're a Filipina-American. Talk about the Filipino brains uh, in this collection and how you got involved with this story. Yeah, Thank you so much for having me.
2: Uh, as we said in that video, you know, when I heard about the Filipinos involved in this collection, I immediately knew that we needed to make this a big story. Um, and that's because so much of the history between the Philippines and the U.S., many people don't know. So actually, four of these brains had actually come from Filipinos who had been brought to the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. And there, there had been what was essentially a human zoo, a living museum exhibit, where people would flock to St. Louis and see how indigenous Filipinos and other Filipinos were living. They lived in mock villages, um, and they would do their daily chores, and, they, and people would say these people were primitive or that they were savages, um, and fair officials actually pressured uh, the Igorot people, that is a term that broadly talks about uh, indigenous Filipinos who live in the Cordillera uh, region of Luzon. Uh, they would pressure these indigenous Filipinos to eat dogs, even though that um, happened very rarely back home. And so that exacerbated a stereotype uh, that lingers to this day. And so what we actually found is that. Some of these Filipinos died while they were at the fair or on the way here from the Philippines. And what Alice Herdlichka knew was that he could go there and actually take some of their brains. And so what we found is that Herdlichka went to St. Louis in 1904 and he autopsied two Filipinos and uh, two other Filipinos had their brains sent to him later. But one of them was likely a woman named Mauda. And we created an illustrated narrative about her life and her death, with illustrations from a Filipino-based or Philippine-based artist named Ren Galeno, uh, because we wanted to really show that fair from the perspective of the Filipinos. We dug deep into newspaper archives, and we saw, you know, many articles where they were referring to them as savages. They were talking about their customs as if they were very strange. And we really wanted to create something that would show the perspectives of the Filipinos, because so many of those perspectives had gotten lost.
0: And just to be clear, the U.S. had occupied the Philippines from 1898 for, what, the next half century until 1946.
2: Yes. And so I think actually the previous segments really talked about um, being able to teach people the history, uh, some of the dark chapters of the U.S. history. And a lot of people don't know that the Philippines was a territory uh, and that this was something that really affected how people saw Filipinos. And um, actually, William Howard Taft was using the fair Basically, to show that the U.S. was good for the Philippines. And that was partly why they were bringing these indigenous Filipinos. They were saying, look how we can help them. Look how they are primitive.
0: Can you tell us, Nicole, um, uh, Claire, about Mary Sara, uh, her family, Sami, uh, from indigenous to areas that include northern Scandinavia?
4: Yes. So, Mary Sara was an 18 year old Sami woman from Alaska. And she died in Seattle in 1933 of tuberculosis. She had gone to Seattle with her mother for her mother to get cataract surgery. And the doctor who was doing the cataract surgery on her mother then took her brain and sent it to the Smithsonian. And so he sent on the day that she died, he sent a telegram to Alice Herdlichka saying, if you want a Sami brain, I can get one for you today. And so when we reached out to her first cousin in Alaska, she had no idea that this had happened.
0: And so let's talk about what's going to happen now. Um, I just read a quote from the head of the Smithsonian. Uh, He, uh, Lonnie Bunch, was the founding director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture and then became the head of the whole Smithsonian. He's saying this is unethical. Talk about um, how the Smithsonian has responded over this year and what they have set up.
4: So as you noted, he did apologize for how these remains were collected in the past. And he has put together a task force that has already met three times to try to look at these human remains and how to return them and how to move forward. He said that he's going to look to the task force to decide that best way of moving forward, whether that's contacting individual families or, as he suggested, doing some sort of mass grave, is what he said in Arlington Cemetery. And so he's going to look at what the task force wants him to do and The Smithsonian has also reached out to the embassy of the Philippines to repatriate the Filipino remains um, months after we started reporting. And so conversations are underway to look into repatriating those remains.
0: Nicole Duncan, where are the remains being held now? Are medical professionals able to access this? Um, And also the fact that this is global. We're not just talking about skulls and brains from the United States and what this means, how the international community has responded.
2: They're being held right now in the museum support center Center of the Smithsonian Institution, and that's in Suitland, Maryland. Um, And actually, at the beginning of the year, Lonnie Bunch III, the secretary of the Smithsonian, restricted access to human remains. But what we do know is that There is uh, the ability to be researching some of these remains if two top Smithsonian officials sign off on this. Um, There are still anthropologists who would be able to access this, uh, but they are creating policies that that will be able to say this is what you can do in terms of collecting human remains. It has to be consensual or this is the kind of research that you will be able to do.
0: And, Claire Healy, can you talk about the significance of the largest group, um, Black people, the skulls and fetuses of Black people, how they were classified, which makes it more difficult to repatriate them?
4: Right. So, the only law in place um, that the Smithsonian is under is the NMAI Act, and this requires the Smithsonian to send out inventories of its Native American remains— to federally recognized tribes, and so that doesn't cover other um, populations and demographics within this collection, and it doesn't cover black Americans. And so a lot of the black Americans whose remains are in this collection, their families would have no idea, and the Smithsonian isn't obligated to reach out to any of them or to even release publicly an inventory. And so we don't really have a sense of um, how they're going to move forward in informing families in um, looking into how to address those remains. But we also know that black Americans was a population that Herlichka specifically targeted. Um, He talks about that in his writings and in his manual in 1904 that he puts out in Looking for Human Remains. And so, as we know in the article, the largest racial group in the United States that that had brains taken was black Americans. And it's unclear what the Smithsonian will do about that.
0: Well, we'll continue to follow the story, as I'm sure both of you will. Claire Healy and Nicole Dunka of The Washington Post, we will link to your remarkable investigative series revealing the Smithsonian's racial brain collection. That does it for our show. Democracy now produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Shafe, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Jamie Maria Studio, John Hamilton, Ravi Karan, Hani Masood, Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DiFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.